0: Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of Ophthalmic Innovation. And now here's our host, Tom Salemi.
1: Hi everyone, I am Tom Salemi. Welcome to our first OIS podcast. I'm pleased to be joined by Jim Mazo. Jim was head of AMO before taking on his current role as operating partner at Verson Ventures. Jim also assumes the chairman's position of Verson's portfolio company, Acufocus. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time. The past few years have been difficult for the device sector overall, but as evidenced by the success of the OIS events, ophthalmology has been somewhat of an oasis. Why is that?
2: You know, Tom, I would identify it for three primary reasons. Um, One is demographics. If you look at the um, age that eye diseases affect, it hits all three. Um, A lot of other um, key healthcare issues don't really hit all the demographics. We obviously have the aging with cataract. We have the baby boomers who are, you know, affected by presbyopia. And then, of course, we have the uh, Gen Y, Gen X uh, starting to get into that age where they're they're challenged in either in contact lens wear or their conditions are looking to fit with more refractive challenges. So you have the demographics. Number two... We have severe eye diseases today that um, are really affecting the population and they're, they don't have a known cure. Retina, age-related macular degeneration, you have glaucoma, you have dry eye, uh, and you have presbyopia, four major conditions that really are affecting these pop- the population um, but without a known cure. And then I'll just go right to the principle. If you talk to your friends, you talk to the family, Um, when you talk about conditions that they're affected by, the one that tends to resonate the most and is the most concerning for them are their eyes. Um, You know, it's not to say that cancer and heart disease are not a top of mind, but when you talk to people, their eyes are just a special organ, and people will really do everything possible to ensure they don't cut corners uh, on the treatment of the eyes. So I would say demographics terrible eye conditions that are still have not met with any type of treatment and then of just the overall natural tendency to take care of our eyes.
1: Where are we in in the maturation of ophthalmology technology? I remember writing a decade and a half ago about how VCs were beginning to really center, really concentrate funds on the area. Uh, Clearly, the industry is well-developed and has clear leaders. But where are we in terms of technology? Are we just beginning to see... The introduction and the evolution of new technologies that will really change how eye care is delivered or is there a long way to go
2: i would tell you that i don't see us at all in a maturation phase and it goes back to really how i answered the first question the reason Mm. is is that our demographics are changing um you know we're becoming older um the gen y gen x is becoming more educated the baby boomers are starting to move a little get a little older Uh, And so we're we're not maturing as an industry. Uh, We still have unmet disease entities, which I just talked about. Age-related macular degeneration, tremendous amount of energy from a science standpoint being put into that. Um, And then glaucoma, dry eye, presbyopia. But what's also, I think, interesting, and part of your question is that we have traditional Companies We have great companies like Abbott Medical Optics and Alcons and Allergans of the world, but we still foster innovation through the smaller entities, and that's why venture companies like Versant were very um, excited because the small entity can still have a major impact into the large entity and complement what the large entity is doing. So it's a great ecosystem for both large and small because these conditions have not been treated. Uh, you know, If in, in your traditional cataract surgery, yes. Is there a lot of innovation? There's constant innovation. But when you talk about presbyopia or dry eye, there's a lot of players in there because it's not a known cure today.
1: Mm-hmm. How has this area performed for the venture investors who have been backing these companies for a long time? Have, have they realized returns in their investments in, in some of those companies? Has the Ophthalmology sector performed well overall. Do you think for uh, for VCs?
2: Well, I know you know if you take if you start large in your term of venture company, I think all venture companies have been challenged in medical devices. I think biotech sure. has really been the where most of the people have spent a lot of time and energy, simply because of the size of the market potential. But if you talk to venture groups and you talk to the ones that have been involved in ophthalmology. They continue to be extremely excited. And why is that? Again, large companies do a tremendous job. I ran a large company. We do a tremendous job of of coming and developing technologies. But our of the R and D, the very little R, most of it's D. And the R has come from these small entities. And Versant, being one of the leaders, if not the leader in the ophthalmic sector when it comes to venture, helps provide some technologies for the larger entities, or in some cases, we've taken the entities and, and allowed it to exist on its own. But Versin is just one of many examples. I mean, you, you can see what's happened with AMO and the purchase of Optometica. Um, mm-hmm. You can see that you know, there's been other large entities purchasing companies from smaller uh, venture-backed ent- companies. So I would tell you that this system within within venture groups, ophthalmology continues to do well because the disease entities are still not met, and the large companies uh, they're they're spending their their productivity is more in the development stage and then in the research stage. hmm And clearly, your your
1: role with Percent, you're an operating partner there.
2: I know you're working CEO and
1: chairman of uh, you're seems to be quite a departure from your your big company focus. Um, what specifically drew you from from the the big company world to join a, a smaller company and to work closely with a with a VC like uh, like Versant?
2: Well, thanks. That's actually a very interesting question, and it makes me pause to think because there's probably a multiple answers, and sure. trying to spend all our time on that one. But first off, I would say as operating partner at Versant, which I became the first one, is really my focus is on uh, all of our entities, spending time with the ones where we have some key monumental tasks. You know, besides AccuFocus, uh, another entity I'm spending a lot of time with is executive Chair's Neurotech, which is in the retina space, and also involved in a couple other of our entities. So as an operating partner, I get to spend time with the companies is what I like to do, you know. And, and, and so, A, it allows me to continue to do what I enjoy, spending time with the companies and spending time with the technologies. Let me start off with what I would tell you that actually is – is the similarities between large and small. And I would tell you that there's still two basic components. One, it's still a people business. And no matter if you have thousands or hundreds or tens, people still make a difference. Mm -hmm. And then you need to have a a term that Bill Link taught me many, many years ago. You still need to have good science. And so large companies, small companies, you, you can't get away from, uh, the longevity of having good science. I always say in the medical device business, you can sell the first hundred, but number 101, number 102 gets very difficult um, because you need to make sure that there's good science. So those would be the similarities. Where I'll tell you some of the dissimilarities is you need to fail fast in this uh, smaller entity. But actually a learning that I would say if I went, ever went back, which I have no desire to, to go back to a large entity um, they should fail fast as well. It's one thing I could have done a better job by running AMO. You have the luxury of having people, a lot of people, and a lot of money, and so you don't have to fail fast. Small entities have to fail fast because you don't have the luxury of having a lot of people and a lot of money. But there's a lot to say to that. The other one is that in smaller entities, people have to play multiple hats uh, or wear multiple hats, excuse me. In large companies, you have, you know, you have specialists for specialists. We have a lot of generalists in small companies, which is great because they have to play a bunch of positions, but it is a challenge because you do would like to have that person who really can focus on one part of the business and execute it against that one part. Mm-hmm. So I would say, to answer your question on overall, um, I don't have any issue with regards to large and small because, because it still allows me to do what I love doing, working with companies helping bring great technologies and developing people, and then having an exit, an exit being either, you know, an exit being that we've, we've made a practice, uh, an ophthalmology or an optometry practice better, or we've made an exit for a company um, to be integrated into a larger company, or we've taken a company and made it larger and let it stand on its own. So it, it's not as dissimilar as people think, um, it's just really the complexity and the availability to ant- to address issues. It's a more of a singular focus with a small entity versus that larger focus with a mm-hmm. larger entity.
1: I've, I've always found the immediacy of the smaller companies to be very exciting to be able
2: to act on something more
1: quickly as opposed to old meeting after meeting. Uh, regarding yeah, the-
2: there, there, there is a lot to that, and that's why I think if you could have that, I used to call it at AMO an entrepreneurial. Um, attitude where you know an entrepreneur worries about paying the light bill and um, you know a lot of things, and an entrepreneur is they don 't have to worry about paying the light bill, but they keep that attitude of failing fast, moving fast, which is what small companies are are built on and you know we hear about a lot of the successes, but there 's a lot of failures too mm-hmm. um, and you know and you know and we 've learned from that, and in fact o i s had a great session. I think at the last one where we talked about companies that have not succeeded and why, and it was interesting. It, it tied to it, it could probably go to two things: the people component, not the right people aligned with where we needed to be, and the technology just was not there. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I could tell you, I could tell you AMO and Alcon's and J and J's of the world have the same problem. You know, wrong people in the wrong place, or um, technologies just couldn't meet the requirements of their customer.
1: Jim, I'd like to take a quick break, and we'll be right back to our podcast.
0: OIS is now accepting applications for presenting companies. Share your technology and clinical data with over 800 industry executives, investors, and key opinion-leading ophthalmologists. To be considered for the Ophthalmology Innovation Showcase, apply online at www.ois.net forward slash application.
1: Welcome back to the OIS podcast. We have the pleasure today of speaking with Jim Mezo, who is a past chairman of Advamed. Jim, going back to our conversation about startups, uh, do you have any thoughts on whether the medtech investment model itself is broken, or how it needs to change?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I do. I, I think that's what's changed, and you know, I don't know if it's the times. I think you know, ten years from now, when you're talking to somebody different and a lot younger hmm. than myself. Uh, you're going to have probably questions that say, well, there's this, this difficult time. There's always difficult times, interesting times. I would tell you what needs to be changed is that the investor needs to think of the entity now on a much more global nature than they ever did before. Not because mm-hmm. of the regulatory path, but because of the impact. And again, I'm talking about the spaces that I, that I spend time in. Ophthalmology, uh, dermatology, aesthetics, cardiology, Uh, those areas where, where you need to think globally because the impact of the, of the technology is felt globally because our meetings are global now. No matter where they're based, you don't just see that country being represented. There, it's everybody's there. Number Mm -hmm. two, the journals. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming this podcast is going to be heard across the globe. The journals. Although they're specialized by regions, they're read by everyone. They're emails. Right. So I think the globalization needs to be understood more. You know, a lot of entities think, well, the utopia is the U.S., and that's great because the market potential is big. I don't disagree. But I would tell you that there's markets that are growing and that you can become very successful. But you have to have the mindset of how to get there, and you have to have it goes back to the right people Mm-hmm. And you can't treat every market the same. That's that's got to be a challenge, and that I mean a change, because that's a challenge that I would say most investors don't appreciate. They wait for the outcome to come to the U.S. and then they become disgruntled if it doesn't come to the U.S. as quickly, and, and that could be both by regulatory or the product's not ready or whatever the the issue is. So I think that's fundamental number one. Fundamental number two is that we can no longer believe that by just minor improvements we can introduce a product today. Mm-hmm. Our healthcare uh, issues across the globe will not tolerate minor improvements. <clears throat> uh, it, because it just can't it can't justify continuing to approve products who are very, very similar in nature and have a plethora of them for the doctor to pick. Uh, it just can't afford it. So what we need to do is we need to make sure that we have the discipline now to introduce products. They don't have to be revolutionary, but they can't be so similar to the existing technologies approved because it doesn't do anything to really help the outcomes. And when it doesn't help the outcomes, the governments, the ministries of health are looking very severely at that, and I think that's fair. I think that's very Mm -hmm. fair. Um, so when when a, a venture group gets involved or a private equity group or whoever is in investing, they need to really be more disciplined on understanding that you're not going to have these minor improvements just come out and do extremely well. And I, don't, I just don't think they're going to get a, approved.
0: What, and then one the of other the areas. Is,
2: okay. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No. ahead. Okay, finish your finish that. Well, and then I would say the the third area that is really becoming. More and more is the is the discipline to think that not everything is going to get reimbursed mm-hmm. um, that now we're facing across not just ophthalmology products and segments that the end user, in this case the patient, will pay um, mm-hmm. that brings a different discipline. Um, you might not sell as many widgets because the size of the market is less. But you might be able to have a greater return because your value is maybe increased because you're mm-hmm. selling, you know, uh, the patient pace creates a different discipline though, creates a different mindset, um, and again, these are all changes that are that are upon us. And I would tell you that some comp- some venture groups, and I and I can speak reverse and have gotten there and understood that, and have actually led the way. Some are still challenged by those three entities.
1: Mm-hmm. How is the, uh, the the regulatory? I mean, if, if we talk about the FDA a lot at every conference, the FDA comes up. It, you had a recent experience uh with uh, the camera inlay receiving uh from the ophthalmic Devices panel. Four to five voted against the safety of, of the device, but seven to one voted in favor of its efficacy. It was it was an odd decision. Now, I understand you need to be careful talking about the FDA, but but what's your your take on the process, and and what can you say about where uh, where you are with the FDA currently?
2: Well, first off, again, another component which I think you, you didn't mention, which is really the most important component um, in a panel process, and um, or is extremely important, I should say, is the benefits outweigh the risk. and that and that mm-hmm. we did get a positive uh, a positive vote on, and that that's a key one, a very key one. I'm going to start a little bigger again and kind of delve right into your question. We we didn't get a chance to talk, but you talked about my experience on Abomet and and MDMA and uh, where we were talking earlier, Um, you know, and I I was chairman of Abomet for two years and during some, some very interesting times. One of the things that we did during my tenure as chairman was negotiate the MADUFMA three. And I would Mm -hmm. tell you, I think that was really a difficult task, but has been instrumental in what i see now a much more productive fda um much more uh, agreeing to having discussions um, so i will have to say that I, I think the fda has been a very good partner i think uh, you know under dr shuren and uh, dr edelman what we face here in the u.s and uh, ophthalmics specifically i've been very pleased in the cooperative discussions a uh, hard but but fair discussions and I think that medufa 3 was was really a key here. Could we all do better? Of course. I mean, I think we as companies own to improve as well as the FDA. But I will tell you that the partnership I've seen has been really key and very, very positive for us. Uh, and we continue to uh, see and hope that we will continue to have that partnership. But I will tell you, when, when I was chairing AdvoMed, and obviously I was just the chairman and, there, and all the other people deserve all the credit, the negotiation around MDUFA-3 was very difficult. It led to very, very good outcomes, and I think we're all seeing the benefits of those outcomes. Mm-hmm. Interesting.
1: And one of the areas where we're seeing new ideas come
2: from, uh, it's talked about
1: a lot, is, is the, the, the digital side of things, to lack of a better word, or from, from the technology side. Uh, we recently uh, saw the Google Novartis uh, effort. They've, they've joined up to develop the contact lens, uh, that could correct far and, and monitor glucose, hopefully. What, what does this mean for eye care companies? Is this just, you think, a blip, or is this some significant historical event that we might point to down the road?
2: Well, i I'll, I'll bridge from the the Google Novartis to, to a larger point of your question. First off, I, I congratulate uh, Novartis. I congratulate Jeff George for doing this because again what i love about this space and we talked about it earlier there are still unmet needs
1: mm-hmm.
2: and you know you, you some pot, people don't naturally automatically think about you know monitoring glucose for the eye well obviously diabetic retinopathy is one of our biggest issues diabetes is the number one issue in the world today for healthcare number one spend is diabetes so i i, I just appreciate when i see companies large and small thinking out of the box, and thinking of ways to be able to handle and improve patient outcomes. You know, we've, we've had a history of great innovation, but some of the innovation has not led to patient compliance. We probably are still behind on compliance. I mean, you think about our, our pharmacological therapies. These therapies are outstanding. They're not the easiest to comply with. I mean, why is dry eye so underserved? Why is glaucoma so underserved? Because either we haven't diagnosed it or we haven't been able to have, you know, compliance. So when we can improve compliance and we can get the patient more involved in his or her management, I love it. So I think you're going to see much more involvement now where you can improve compliance through great therapies. I think the other areas you're going to see is, is again, you know, we're going to, I'm having this discussion coming up at um, an ACO session where we're talking about new technologies and one of them are all these different applications, these apps. Uh, you know, sometimes we can sit there and say, well, those are trivial. There's so many. Actually, again, it goes back. There are several very, very interesting ones where it hooks up the practitioner and the patient and in, in gets them more engaged versus the practitioner being, you know, that solo practitioner sitting in an office and, you know, you have to make an appointment. These applications are now allowing the patient with the practitioner uh, to help manage his or her disease. And the more we can be proactive, the reducing of the cost. You know, you've all heard that age-old story where, you know, we do over-diagnosis or over-testing because the patient isn't involved. Um, Now if the patient is involved and takes, you know, takes more of a responsibility into the management of their disease, we can actually decrease costs and we can help the outcome. But we have to have products and we have to have services that can get that. And I think you're seeing a lot of that. And I, I love to see that we're not we're not taking the traditional approach to retina, glaucoma, um, you know, dry eye, uh, presbyopia. You know, we have a company called Neurotech where we're actually using cell-based therapy to help age-related macrogeneration. We're we're taking what, you know, the natural body has provided us, our cells, our retina cells, and reengaging them back to self-heal. You know, all interesting new novel approaches. And, and again, kind of goes back to your first question, Tom. Why is this sector still exciting? Mm-hmm. Unmet needs, patients got to get more involved, and we're all trying these things.
1: It sounds like there'll be a lot to talk about in October. Any other high points that uh, you think we'll be hitting? You
2: know, well, you know, you know, as best as I, uh, you know, with Emmett Gill and Bill, again, along with several of us that help with the OIS, uh, we have to turn away talks. It's not like we're, hmm. we're we're searching, you know, and going on the internet looking for talks or looking for. Issues. <laughs> I mean, you realistically could run that meeting three days and probably would pack it, but we just. We just couldn't do that because it runs up against, uh, you know, an Academy meeting or an ASCRS, but, but we're not, when we're planning the agenda, we're not looking to try to find things. It it's, it's more the opposite of trying to have to say, unfortunately, we can't get you the agenda's too full. So, mm-hmm. uh, and these aren't technologies that are a hope and a prayer, you know, a hail Mary pass. They're, they're real. Um, so, uh, you know, I would say this is my 35th year in this industry. And being actually part of Versa, and I even see more now, I saw a lot at AMO, but I spent a lot more time looking at various companies at various stages. Um, you know, there, there isn't a day goes by that I don't have to sit back and really look at some of these things and say, wow, they're, these things have potential to make an impact. Now, can we properly resource them? Are they the right people? And is it good science? Um, some of them don't pass that test. Uh, and some do. Great, lots to talk about. I Look forward to
1: connecting in uh, in Chicago, and, and thanks for joining us for our first Ophthalmology Innovation Podcast.
2: Well, thank you. I'm I'm thrilled. I'm looking forward to uh, a great meeting, and looking forward to interact with yourself and all the others. Perfect. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Tom. Have a good day.
1: Thanks, everyone, for joining us in our first OIS podcast with our guest Jim Mezo. Tune into our next podcast. We'll talk to Versant's Bill Link. Thanks so much for listening.
0: Don't miss your chance to attend the next Ophthalmic Innovation Summit at AAO on October 16th in Chicago. OIS will showcase market changing technologies and provide a forum for industry leaders to discuss and debate the challenges and opportunities facing this dynamic industry. Hear what world-renowned ophthalmologist and inventor Dr. Steve Charles has to say. This is a great forum to get everybody in the same room. These are not separate parts of the puzzle. They've got to be a cohesive unit to work together. We can't see the FDA or the venture capital communities adversarial. They've got to be part of the process. And so this is dialogue. That's what this is about. And it was a very effective forum for that. It's the fifth time they've held it. It's also very effective in the spring at the ASCRS meeting. I'm delighted to be a part of it. So visit the new OIS Super Site for more details and to register at www.ois.net.